This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. What's up, podcast listeners? You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week. This is episode 175, entitled, Was Jesus a Monotheist? Was Jesus a Monotheist? In this week's episode, we will look at the question, which might seem obvious to some, but curious to others. Was Jesus a Monotheist? In other words, we will be exploring the historical question as to whether Jesus Christ believed adhered to, and taught Jewish monotheism. Now I'm going to be drawing inspiration from a 2004 article by James Dunn entitled, Was Jesus a Monotheist? A Contribution to the Discussion of Christian Monotheism. This article was published in a collection of essays in the volume Early Jewish and Christian Monotheism within the Library of New Testament Studies, and that was published by TNT Clark. I'll probably be making a few podcasts on a variety of the essays within this edited volume, so please look forward to those as well. How does James Dunn answer the question regarding whether Jesus Christ was a monotheist based on a historical inquiry. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is what we can infer from Jesus' upbringing. And so to begin, we need to define the Jewish Shema, which is included In this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. And this is what is called the Shema. And the name or title Shema comes from the first Hebrew imperative in verse 4. The verb Shema is the imperative which means hear or listen or pay attention. And so that initial word comes to be used to describe the entirety of its contents, which includes the creedal statement of Israel's God being the only God and being one person. Now it can be inferred that the recitation of the creed of God's oneness 
was to take place when you rise up and when you lie down. And by the time the Mishnah was composed, and the Mishnah was the first written collection of the Jewish oral laws, and this collection was written down around the year 200 AD, the practice of reciting the Shema was long established. So done by pointing out that this particular evidence is trying to create the historical context in which you might be able to understand Jesus as potentially reciting the Shema as a historical person. We know from an earlier document, the 2nd century BC, letter to Aristeus in verse 132, this letter indicates that the Jewish focus on only one God was widely known, even as far as Alexandria, Egypt. So by pointing out this piece of evidence, Dunn is indicating that the Jewish people were widely recognized, even outside of Palestine, as the people that only focused on one single God. Now Josephus in the first century has a similar indication when he says that, quote, it was common among all of the Hebrews, end quote, to acknowledge that there is one God. And Josephus says this in his book Antiquities, book 5, verse 112. So we have a lot of data to demonstrate that the Jews were widely known as the people that acknowledged and worshipped only one God. Now why in the world would we even mention this? Why is James Dunn making these particular historical points? Well, the answer is clear, and that is because Jesus Christ was a Jew. He was a Jewish person, and therefore he has to be interpreted in light of his Jewish context. That context has to be responsibly recreated. And we can infer that Jesus was raised by religiously pious parents. We can look at the household in which Jesus was raised, and we can infer whether Mary and Joseph, we'll put Joseph there in air quotes when it comes to parents, and we can make some assessment as to how religiously pious this particular family was. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 indicates that Joseph and Mary named their other children James, which is another way of saying Jacob, Judah, Simon, which is another way of saying Simeon, and Joseph, which is another way of saying Joseph. And these are pretty famous names within the Abrahamic family. You've got Jacob, you've got Judah, you've got Simeon, and you've got Joseph. You don't name your children those particular names unless you are pious Jewish people. Now, a pious upbringing within the household in which Jesus was raised would certainly include the recitation of the Shema, the monotheistic creed of Israel. So Jesus would have grown up regularly confessing the creed of God's oneness. The Gospels, 
particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, note that Jesus frequented the synagogues within his preaching of the kingdom of God. And the fact that Jesus was a regular attender of these synagogues demonstrates that throughout his upbringing, Jesus participated in the synagogue. He was familiar with the synagogue liturgy. He was there on the Sabbath while he was growing up. So this, of course, further demonstrates that Jesus was a pious Jew, and he likely received this from his parents during his upbringing. We can also surmise that Jesus was able to read, based on various indicators within the Gospels. The Jewish practice, as recorded by Josephus, indicates that every seventh day should be given over to the study of the Torah in Jewish customs. That's what Josephus says in Antiquities, book 16, verse 43. So if Jesus was able to read, he was likely able to study, and the common Jewish practice in the first century was that the Sabbath was the day given over to the study of Torah and to Jewish customs. Now, Jesus' own religious devotion can be observed in many other details. We can note that Jesus wore prayer tassels. We note that Jesus took regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the Jewish feast, and Jesus even spoke on the subject of tithing. So we can surmise that Jesus was a Jew who practiced Judaism faithfully. This would also indicate that Jesus was a believer in only one God, as the Jewish creed insists. But what exactly did Jesus teach about God and about monotheism? And this is where we move to our second point. Point number two, Jesus' teachings regarding God. Again, in this point, I am summarizing the arguments that James Dunn has put forth in his particular essay. So these are his arguments, and then I'm making a few comments on them. Okay, so what did Jesus himself teach about God? Well, Dunn points out that all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, indicate that Jesus recited and affirmed the Shema. We can see this in Matthew 22, Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 10. Most importantly, Jesus regarded the Shema, which is the command to love the one God with all of one's being and to love one's neighbor as himself, as the greatest commandment. So it's not just that Jesus acknowledged the monotheistic creed. Jesus thought that the monotheistic creed was the greatest of all of the commandments. So Jesus thought that the creed of Israel, which indicated that God is one person, was the foremost commandment. And this indicates that Jesus was reaffirming the fundamental Jewish pillar in his teaching of his immediate followers. In other words, Jesus affirmed Jewish monotheism, and he taught his followers 
to likewise affirm Jewish monotheism. And when we read Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 10, where the greatest commandment is described, Jesus does not expand, redefine, or further unpack God's oneness when Jesus teaches that the Shema is the foremost commandment. So Jesus is a monotheist. He teaches monotheism, and Jesus does not change the monotheism that he inherited from his pious Jewish upbringing. We also have the account of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. We can see this in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10. I'll go and quote the Mark chapter 10 reference because it was probably the earliest reference. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, it says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's Mark 10, verses 17 through 18. And so Jesus affirms that only God is good. Now, why would Jesus say that only God is good? Because God is the source, creator, and definition of all goodness. Now, Matthew's version of the story, while softening the suggestion made by Jesus, nevertheless affirms the point made in Mark's version that there is only one person who is good. Matthew chapter 19 at verse 17. So that is still affirmed in Matthew's version that there is only one person who is good and that one person is God. Jesus is not pointing to himself. He's saying, no, it's God who is good. And by connecting goodness to only one person, namely to God, Jesus is continuing to affirm the monotheistic confession of the Shema. Moving on, we can look at how Jesus taught his immediate followers to pray within the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer appears in a couple of different versions, a longer version and a shorter version. The longer version is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, and the shorter version is in Luke chapter 11. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus speaks on his understanding of God and God's own holiness. So in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, Jesus teaches his followers to pray by giving the petition to, quote, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. So Jesus taught his disciples that God is the Father, God is located in heaven, and specifically, God's name is holy, it's hallowed, and it should be set apart. This indicates that Jesus thought that God should be set apart and placed on a whole other level from everyone else. Jesus, of course, defines this one God as the Father, and the Father is on a whole other level 
compared to everyone else. And that is exactly what you would expect of someone who is a devout monotheist. You teach that the one God is not equal with anyone else and that his name should be holy, set apart, and hallowed. The Father's commitment and devotion that is due unto him demanded this sort of exclusive respect and commitment. That's what we can get from Jesus' teaching on prayer to the Father and the petition that God's name would be set apart. The next petition in the Lord's Prayer is to let your kingdom come. The inauguration of God's kingdom marks God's rule and reign as most important in the lives of God's people. It's not just the kingdom, it's the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom. God is the one that is ruling. God is the one that is functioning as a king. So the commitment to God's kingdom and to God as the ultimate king is to be the wholehearted devotion of Jesus' followers. And of course, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 6.24 that you cannot serve God and wealth because devotion that is due to this one God who is to be set apart as holy cannot compete with the serving of other things. Moving on, we can see in the teachings of Jesus that God is consistently defined as the Father. And from the various ways in which Jesus was remembered speaking about God as Father, Jesus' own monotheism was confessed as well as taught to his immediate followers. So Jesus would regard God as Father by saying, My Father. The Father was the Father of Jesus. And yet Jesus also taught to his disciples that the true God is your Father, in the sense that God was their Father and they were God's children. And yet we also saw in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 that God collectively is our Father. He is the Father of Jesus and the Father of Jesus' disciples indicating that Jesus and his disciples were a part of this redefined family of God that was defined with God as their shared father. So it doesn't matter if, if the father is Jesus' father, or if the father is the father of the disciples, or if it's the father of Jesus and the disciples together, Jesus defined God as the father. And this is, of course, a further expression of Jesus' own monotheism. We can also note in the temptation accounts of Jesus in the wilderness, which show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but their longer forms appear in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, there is another statement from Jesus regarding God and the specific cultic service that God alone deserves. So in Matthew's version, 
in chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus responds to Satan by saying, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. Now Jesus here is citing a passage from the Hebrew Bible from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. And it's interesting when you go back and look at Deuteronomy 6.13, we can see the emphasis that Jesus gives in the way that he cites this particular passage. So in Deuteronomy 6.13, it says, You shall fear Yahweh your God, and you shall worship him. And it's interesting that Matthew's Jesus added the word only to the acts of serving God in a cultic sense. So in Matthew, it says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus adds that word only there. The word for service in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10 is the Greek verb latrevo. And it's a very specific type of worship and devotion. It is the cultic act of people that are honoring God as priestly service as temple service, and that sort of service is only due to God, specifically the Lord God, to Yahweh himself. We don't see Jesus himself as the object of the verb latrevo within the New Testament. It is only correctly used of God the Father within the New Testament, and that is a consistent New Testament teaching. Only God is worthy of this Latrevo cultic service. And of course, Jesus could say that only God is worthy of that because Jesus is a good monotheist. This affirms Jesus' monotheistic stance. I think it's interesting that James Dunn, within his article, is able to pull all of this evidence together, and yet he doesn't have to even go into the Gospel of John in order to draw from that particular gospel regarding what Jesus has to say about his monotheistic stance. I do think that the Jesus within the Gospel of John outstandingly and repeatedly announces that he is a believer and teacher of unitary monotheism, of Jewish monotheism. But it's interesting that James Dunn, from a historical standpoint, thinks that his argument can be made more effectively and more persuasively by simply sticking to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to the earliest Gospels. I just think that's an interesting observation. Let's move to our third and final point, which is the impact of Jesus' teaching on monotheism. Now, in this particular section, Dunn has this great quote about Jesus' own monotheism and the developing Christologies of the next few centuries. Dunn writes, quote, The affirmation that, for example, Jesus was God incarnate cannot ignore the possibility that Jesus as a devout monotheistic Jew would himself have denied that affirmation or even found it ridiculous, end quote. Wow, what a, what a powerful quote. He is saying that 
an affirmation of saying Jesus is God incarnate would have been something that Jesus, if he was a devout monotheistic Jew, would have thought was ridiculous. And Jesus would have denied that he is God incarnate. That's a powerful quote. Now in this section, Dunn points out that the teachings of Jesus on monotheism made an actual impact on his earliest followers. And so by looking at what was learned and taught by his earliest followers, we can get a sense of what Jesus himself taught was really important. And the first thing that Dunn points out is that we can safely conclude that Jesus' habit of addressing God as Father, which in Aramaic is the word Abba, this practice was remembered by Jesus' earliest followers, and it was treasured, and it was continued to be passed on. This can be observed within Greek-speaking context, like Paul's letters and Mark's gospel. I'm going to quote the passages in Paul's letters to kind of make this point. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 15, Paul says, You have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Romans 8, verse 15. And there we can see that this practice of regarding God as the Father, but also regarding God with the Aramaic word Abba, was something that Jesus himself taught. It was something that made an impact on the earliest disciples, and it was passed on, even by Paul, within non-Aramaic-speaking context. We can see this in the earlier letter of Paul, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Much of the same from what we saw in Romans 8. Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Very similar to what we saw in Romans 8 verse 15. Paul says that the Spirit within the body of believers persuades them to regard God as Abba, Father. And that is what Jesus himself taught. That's what Jesus himself did in his own ministry. And it demonstrates that Jesus' own monotheistic teaching had a lasting impact on his earliest followers, who were also monotheistic. They also regarded God as a single person, namely as the Father. And if Jesus addressed God as Abba Father, and Jesus' followers are to address God as Abba Father, then what does this say about their shared monotheistic outlook? If Jesus and his followers share the same Father, then it goes to show that they are members of the same family, namely the renewed family of God. And Paul points this out in Romans 8, verse 29. In this passage, it says, For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that Jesus would be 
the firstborn among many brethren. Namely, Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's Romans 8, verse 29. So if Jesus regarded God as Abba Father, and if Jesus wanted his followers to regard God as Abba Father, then they are part of the same family. Jesus was the firstborn within this family, and the others who regard God as Abba Father are Jesus' brethren, namely his brothers and sisters. And this is the impact that Jesus' teaching on monotheism had on his earliest followers, and we could see it picked up here by the Apostle Paul. Now James Dunn concludes his essay with a stark reminder that Jewish monotheism is incompatible with the attempt to view God as a trinity. So Dunn specifically states, and I quote, For Christians continue to assert that they are monotheist, that God is one, even if their sophisticated attempts to state what that means, unity and trinity, leave both Jew and Muslim at best puzzled or simply unconvinced. End quote. So what Dunn is pointing out, that for Christians to continue to try to say that as monotheists, what they mean is a unity in Trinity, this is a monotheism that is not recognized by monotheistic groups of faith like Jews and Muslims. I think this is a really important point to make out, that the monotheism, that is Jewish monotheism specifically, is something that is incompatible with the message of the Trinity. So in conclusion, we have observed that James Dunn's article, Was Jesus a Monotheist? A Contribution to the Discussion of Christian Monotheism, I think persuasively demonstrates that Jesus was indeed a monotheist. Dunn showed that Jesus' Jewish upbringing was characterized by pious devotion, where the Shema, the creed of Israel that confessed the Lord God as a single person, was likely recited multiple times a day. Dunn furthermore demonstrated that Jesus' teachings showed his acceptance of Jewish monotheism, and Jesus taught the Shema to his immediate followers and frequently defined God as the Father alone. Lastly, Dunn showed that the lasting impression of Jesus' teachings further indicate that Jesus was a monotheist. Jesus' characteristic manner of addressing God as Abba Father was remembered, cherished, and was continued to be taught in Greek-speaking communities of faith. Furthermore, Paul the Apostle regarded Jesus as a son of God within the new family of God in which Christian believers were even included. It goes to show that if Jesus Christ was a monotheist, then he did not regard himself as the only true God. Jesus unwaveringly taught that the Father alone 
was the only true God, and this makes Jesus a good Jewish monotheist. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at early Christian attitudes towards the offering of sacrifices, and we look at how their practices actually offer insight into their Christological understandings of Jesus. So please look forward to this exciting episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths of God's oneness and Jesus' true humanity. You can check out the episode's description for a link to donate. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.